this. This was on top of, was this intentional? This was on top of the pulpit here. God is love, just in case I forget, but uh, that's precious. Somebody drew that or colored that from, uh, I guess, Sunday school this morning, maybe? I don't know. So, okay, all right. I thought there was some kind of secret message there. Uh, you've heard about all the preachers that uh, they're pranked, you know, sometimes somebody, I, I've heard of one preacher that the offering plates were glued to the communion table. <laughs> you know, like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've heard some, and one guy, they had paper clipped half the pages in his Bible, so he's constantly fumbling. But you guys know where we are. We're in the book of John. We've been in the book of John for quite a while. And uh, we're going to take the last few verses of, the chap- of chapter 14, uh, John 14, in just a few minutes. But to set the stage for that, uh, my new son-in-law, who is not here, he's with his, uh, his family as he's helping his sister uh, new son-in-law. That's the only son-in-law I got. I guess he's the old one and the new one. Yeah. So, <laughs> Ryan's the one who told me about this. I guess he saw it on YouTube, and I started to download it because you guys know I love videos. But I, there's a part of me too that I'm intentionally not trying to do as many. Um, but this one is captivating. You can Google it. Not now, but when you get home, a Chinese restaurant, uh, one of these outdoor uh, venues, kind of like the wedding venue that we had, but I mean a gigantic canopy. You know, one that would probably accommodate. 100 to 200 people underneath it. The winds are coming up, and the rain is coming up, and it's starting to lift that canopy. And then what they do is all the people who are eating have stepped away from the table, and they're holding on. And it's going up, and it's going up. And in this, like, minute-and-a-half video, if you just Google, not right now, but when you get home, or maybe if I do get that boring, you can go ahead and put it on there. But a Chinese restaurant or canopy taking off, and it does. It lifts off the ground, and multiple people are lifted into the air. Two people are hang on so long that they go out of view of the camera. And then the next shot you see is a man who's come through the roof at a nearby house interrupting that, peop- that family's dinner. He was the owner of the restaurant, and he had multiple um, broken ribs, I think a wrist and an ankle, so I, I, I heard that and had to look that up after Ryan told me about that because it kept coming back to me as I look at this text today. You've heard the old adage, if you love something, let it go. And if it comes back to you, great. And if it doesn't, okay, it wasn't yours or something like that. So how does that apply? Are they loving that? I don't know. So, so then as the Cliff Perry mind works and as it is so, not a complicated thing, it's so simple that I should be able to figure it out, but... I start Googling, where did that phrase come from? If you love something, let it go. And, of course, I go to the source of all wisdom, and I ask my wife. You guys that don't ask your wife things, you, you need to learn from them, okay? She goes, well, I think it came from the guy, uh, Richard uh, Beck, or Bach Beck, who wrote um, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. If you ever read that book when you were, well, if you're as old as I am, you read it in grade school or high school. I think it came out in the 70s. But um, his name is Bach. It's not Beck. It's Bach. But he gets credited for, ah, Bach, yes. That's another movie. Um, He gets credited for that, but really no one can find it in his writing. So then I start digging, okay, who really said this? Because I've heard different endings of it. How, how, you know, if you love it, it'll come back. And, you know, if it loved you, it'll come back. What's the right ending for all this? So I came across a guy that I had heard of, and I was a history major, and I know I have a history major. He has a master's in history back there. I just got the basic, you know, barely graduated degree. Um, But Albert Schweitzer, you heard that name? Okay. 
he is credited for coining that phrase. Basically, if you love something, let it go. And if it comes back to you, great. And if it didn't, so be it. And that's not exactly how he did it. But then I start on the whole rabbit hole of why would this guy be able to write that? Why do I know him? Was he a doctor? Was he a preacher? Was he a musician? And I would say yes. He went to seminary. He is from the area that we lived not too, when we were stationed in Germany, we were probably uh, 40 clicks or so, uh, 20 some odd miles where we lived uh, from the French border. And he is from that area that was sometimes German, sometimes French. So when you look him up, he's German and sometimes he's French, how they talk, he probably did both languages. But nonetheless, when he's in seminary, probably to be a Lutheran, most people say he was a Protestant in the late 1800s, he probably was Lutheran. Um, but in any event, he does so well in seminary, I guess in his free time, he picks up the organ. And all of a sudden, he is studying Bach. That's why I couldn't remember Bach. Bach, ah, Bach. He's studying Bach, and he does so well with that, they start teaching some of the things that he learned about Bach. He finishes seminary. I don't know if he did get a degree in music or not, but he's doing both of those things. He pastors for a while, and then eventually he hears about a need in Africa and they need doctors down there. And he said, well, I, I guess I could be a doctor. So he takes off the medical school, much to the demise of his, you know, disappointment of his, his uh, family because his dad was a minister as well. And from that, I learned a new word this week, which, of course, our resident historian already knew the word. I know what the word poly means, you know, many. Polymath, that is someone who is very well informed in more than one academic or area of study. So... He's a, he was an expert in math, I mean, sorry, math, in, in theology, music, and medicine. And he received the Nobel Peace Prize in the year my sister was born, 1953, for his ethic or his idea of how to live in life, his reverence for life. Supposedly he got that while going down a boat somewhere in Africa on this boat, and he comes up with these ideas for living, and this is it in a nutshell. This is the Cliff Perry nutshell. He says that power must be replaced by kindness. In all things, power must be replaced by kindness, and that will change the world. And I would like to think he came to that conclusion because of his submission and his following of Jesus Christ. Because the only way to change the world is through Jesus, whether we are taking kindness and compassion in place of power, but it all originates from Jesus. So today we pick up of the writings of John, not the writings of Schweitzer, the one who John would refer, refer to as the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior of this world. And we pick up at the point where the disciples are still upset with the fact that Jesus has said he's leaving. In fact, the last three weeks of sermons were cure for a troubled heart. And we have just a little bit more of that because Jesus is going to tell them, I, I've heard, you heard me say, and I probably have heard you talking about your anxiety, your fear, your confusion that I'm going to leave, leave, leave you. And I think at this point, we see that they're having a hard time letting go. So that's our title this morning, Let Go. If you have your Bibles, John 14, picking up with verse 28. You heard me say, I am going away and I'm coming back to you. Why is it that they focus on the going away? 
I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. That little phrase has caused a theological Rubik's Cube. They have twisted that every which way they possibly can, theologians, to misunderstand and misapply that. Verse 29, I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, in other words, I'm going to die, and when it does happen, you will believe, because he's going to come back from the dead. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me, and I would add, to do. And this last little phrase, the commentators love it, come now, let us leave. Well, actually, he talks for chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. So we don't know whether he's actually talking on the road or he's still in the upper room, but I'll try to make an application for that, come now, let us leave at the end of this message. Let's pray. Father, this text seems to be fairly simple. If you love me, let me go. The world doesn't know me, but you know me. The devil has no power over me. I am in control. I have all power. And finally, we need to go and follow him. So speak to us today with simple phrases with understanding that we can apply these promises of Christ Jesus unto our lives. If we have trouble letting go of things, help us to see that you're in control of all things. Speak to us this day, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus knew that his disciples were troubled. Uh, I said that's what I've talked about for the past three weeks. But now he reminds them of his words that have caused them anxiety. Let me, he said, let me try to encourage you. And to that he says, let go of control. Let go of control. That's the first point. There you go. Have you ever been told by someone that you're controlling? I'm just looking. I'm looking at spouses and looking at their husbands or wives. Anybody ever told you? Now they're all looking at me. I'm not going to look at anybody beside me. You're like Burger King. I want to have it my way, right, all the time. You have to be the one who makes the decisions. But we don't like to think of ourselves as controlling, unless you think you're the smartest person around and you make better decisions than everyone else, and therefore you are controlling. But after looking at the signs of controlling behavior, which I just wrote down a few, some that I thought of, some that I gleaned from uh, other resources, we find that we have many of these tendencies in all of us. Number one, it's our way or the highway. How many of you cannot make a decision after Sunday church on where to go eat? Because one of you in the crew has to have McDonald's french fries. That's what happens when you have children making the decision. Some of you are that way. It's my way or the highway. Or perhaps you have to be the center of attention. You're the drama king or queen. Perhaps you're the one who's always criticizing others. I catch myself doing that 
all the time. So does that mean I'm controlling? Hmm. My wife and I, we've been out to eat at different times in our lives, and I was like, would you wear that? It's like I am the clothing police. Why would I criticize what somebody else is wearing? I mean, it's their decision, right? So maybe it's let go, Cliff, let go. We like to blame others. That's another sign of a controlling behavior. We blame others. We're never the ones who did something wrong, or we're the ones who messed up, or we make the error. We blame others. Or maybe you like to keep score, and I'm not talking like a ball game. Well, I remember last week you did this, and I didn't. You keep score. That's a controlling behavior characteristic as well. Or sometimes you always want to try to change everybody into the person you think they should be. I know that some of you could argue that. Well, we want them all to be more Christ-like. Yeah, but are you wanting them to be Christ-like or more like Cliff-like? You want them to be Christ-like, okay? Or then the last one I have is that you always want to make everybody else feel guilty. Well, we didn't get to go where I wanted to go out to eat because you had to go there. Can you tell I've been on a diet for like two weeks? Food is really heavy on my mind. Jesus tells the disciples that if you love me, you would be glad. That's what I have in NIV, I believe it says. Let's see. If you love me, you would be glad. That is the Greek word, keros, and it's a variation of that, which literally means glad for grace. Keros is the Greek word for grace. Glad for grace. Let that think it, sink in for just a moment. Glad for grace. If Jesus does not go back to the Father, will there be salvation? Will there be redemption? Will our souls be redeemed? Be glad for grace. If you love me, be glad for grace that I'm going back to be with the Father, and you will receive that grace. And if Satan couldn't place a hold on him, look at verse 30, I think that is. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. That's a nice way of saying the devil, Satan. The prince of this world. In fact, some of your translations may say the ruler of this world. And if the devil couldn't control Jesus, how in the world do you think we can control the God of the universe? I remember when this happened. I was still on active duty. Uh, Nicole, and I always blow her last name. I think they call her C.C. Um, it's a, it's a, a KKCC, Lili's. It's one of those double uh, names like that. Malachowski, Malachowski was the first female Thunderbird pilot. She flew in the number three position. And I knew of her because I'd been at Lake and Heath, at, well, way before her time. Well, actually, not that much. But she'd been in um, F 15Es, which is a two place aircraft. And she got selected. And if you read up on this lady, as so many of the women who serve, I mean, she's like the top of the, everything. I think she graduated like, graduated like third in the Air Force Academy, like second from National War, Air Co- War College. I mean, she's always in the top three or whatever, uh, the best at her job. But um, she retired later on. She did 20 years. She retired medically uh, for some sort of uh, like Lyme's disease, something that had to do with a, a tick bite. And she now is a public speaker uh, to advocate the prevention of that. And in one of her speeches, uh, I think it was done to a, actually a children's group, they were asking her, you know, when the, when the Thunderbirds fly, and I know I've got some flyers out there, and those of you know I've done a little flying, but only formation flying a couple of times, and I was in the back seat, not the guy with the stick. 
because, you know, they get so close. When you can see if they're smiling at you, that's pretty close. When you can see their teeth, hey, you got a little salad on your teeth, that's really close, okay? And somebody asked her, how do you do that? She said, well, initially, she said, flying with the Thunderbirds, she said, I had some difficulty because of, you know, just all the pressure, all that. And she said, I finally talked to one of the other pilots about it. You know, it's a wise thing to do. Talk to somebody else that's been doing it. And let me back up just a second. If you've ever been in an F-16, that's one of our first all-by-wire fighters. When they first made it, and it's a side stick. It's not the yoke in between your legs. It's over here on the left, you know, with the throttle on one side and the yoke on this side. And it was so electronic, it did not move at all. It was just a post, if you will. And by your fingers, pressures, the engineers had made it. It knew whether you were pushing up, down, sideways, or whichever way you wanted to go. And pilots got so frustrated with it, they had to give it just a little bit of movement because they didn't feel like they could do it. But this pilot told her, flying the F-16, the more tense you get, the tighter your grip gets. And on that electronic yoke, it does get a little, it, it's, it's got multiple sensors, multiple readings. It's a little more difficult to fly. So he said to her, you need to relax your grip. And when I read that, I thought, man, there's a sermon there. How many of you have tried to grip everything all the time? You try to be in control of your job. You try to be in control of the family. You try to be in control of the health. You try to be in control of the church or whatever aspect you're bringing to it. You're in control of everything. And if you take a little bit of a lesson from Nicole, you maybe just need to loosen the grip a bit. Because really, and I know Lori's in the back, and I'm sure when she did spin training, and if Dean was in here, he'd tell us, often when you put something in a stall in a light airplane, I, I don't know if it works for 747s, but typically, if you're in a stall and it's spinning in an airplane, usually, well, before, the, before it starts spinning, because then you have to give some opposite rudder, but usually, let go. That's the first thing they want you to do, because you're probably cranking it in or pushing it or pulling it. If you let go, the airplane is designed to fly. And if you let go, then maybe kick in the rudder or go the opposite direction to straighten it out. But we need to let go our grip on so many things in our lives. It's kind of like that song, Jesus Take the Wheel. I never liked that, really, because raised by a policeman, if I let go of the wheel, I'd probably get in trouble. But it's not that type of reckless thinking. It is surrendering to Jesus all that you do try to control. And to do that, you must have faith. You must acknowledge that he is the one in control, not you. He is the Savior, not you. He is the King of kings, Lords of the Lords, not you. You must trust in him. You must be able to adapt to change because he may want you to change. The things that you are trying to control, you may not need, and he may want you to let go of those. You need to live in the present versus living in the past because the past will try to control you. You know, you used to do that, and you're dragging that guilt suitcase with you wherever you go. Let go of that. Be accountable, and above all, love and pray to the one who can change your hearts and change your ways. Jesus reminds his disciples that the Father is greater. I, I alluded to a, an, a Rubik's, theological Rubik's Cube. I mean, there are some who would say, Does it, is Jesus saying that he's not, as, he's not fully God? Is Jesus saying that he's not, as, you know, he's not divine? Is G, Jesus, what is he saying here? I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to him is to us that to become human, he left the Father. He is fully divine when he was here on earth, but he became fully human. He left the splendor of glory and came to live like you and I. He was born 
in a manger. That's a nice word of saying he was born in the trough of a, you know, ox barn, if you will. He wasn't born in the, you know, golden palace. He gave up all the riches of heaven and came for you and I. And he says, I go back to him. I want to go be with him. And together, they represent this trinity of, or this trihead of, the, of divinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we need to let him go back so we will have that idea of rejoicing, be glad for grace. Control. How many of you have cruise control on your cars? Raise your hand. Okay, let's do it the other way. If you have a car without cruise control, two or three of you, you must have older cars. Yeah? You got some older cars? Yeah. Or it doesn't work. Now, it doesn't work, doesn't count, you know. If you pull the fuse or you don't use it. My father ordered a brand new Buick in 1976. I am a junior, senior. I'm a junior, I guess, when he ordered it in 75. Solid black, black vinyl top. It's a Buick Electra Limited. They actually had a Park Avenue. I don't think he really knew that because we were trying to get everything possibly on it. When it came in, black, I mean, it's like it wouldn't fit in a modern-day car garage. It's like a, you know, a moving land yacht. Black vinyl over black paint and black velour interior. Oh. I mean, it's like you just want to sleep in there. He got it. You'll love this. I can remember because, you know, this is when things are finally starting to dawn. And when, you, when you're in high school, you, you're clueless about some things, and some things will stick with you. Maybe that explains why I like black cars, too. Dad had a black car, so I like black cars. It was just a hair shy of $10,000 brand new. Don't you wish you had that? Four fifty-five with a four-barrel, you know, drank gas and everything else. But he did not order it with cruise control. I'm like, Why? Well, being a state policeman, he had handled accidents where people were not able to get the cruise control off, and they ended up having an accident. And those of us these days, in fact, I think Toyota was one of the first ones to have it, they have adaptive cruise control now. Have you ever been on the interstate, and you've rented one of those cars, and you're not familiar with it? You had the crew set at 70, and the next thing you know, you were behind the slowest person. Why is this thing going so slow? Because it has adaptive cruise control, and unless you pass it, it's not going to run 70. It's going to run right up on the bumper and stay there. There may be a sermon in that, too. Sometimes you need to run right up on the Lord's bumper and stay there. But where I'm going with that is that many times, Dad and I joked years later, Dad would actually give me that car when we were stationed here the first time, because he was getting ready, to, he got a new car, and I said, man, I'll take it, and I drove it all the way from Illinois back here to, to Texas, and the whole way I'm going, why didn't you buy cruise control? Why didn't you buy cruise control? But we have developed more trust in that, and as Jesus says, let go of your control, let me be in control of all things. Trust me. He said, I told you this, so you'll be ready. That's what he says in these verses. And so the world will see that the love that I have is for the Father. And he speaks of Satan, this prince of this world. And I think in keeping with this let go of control, I think the second point has to be let go of evil or let go of the world, if that strikes you better. Years ago, uh, this is pre-high school, those of you who, how can you remember so far back, took good notes. Um, well, I think in all things, in sermons, you often remember illustrations more than you remember the points. I remember an evangelist that came to our church. I'm guessing I was probably junior high. 
You know, this is when they had revival meetings all week long. And, you know, they lasted forever as a young person. We had a balcony. I don't think they let us always sit in the balcony during the revivals because, you know, the kids were going to be up there wreaking havoc. But this guy told a story that had to do with a little boy, which I could picture myself. The little boy had a dog, which I had a dog. He had a favorite uncle. I really didn't have, I had lots of uncles, but I don't know if I really could say I had a favorite. But I did have a cousin who would come by, uh, my cousin Mick. And the story of two silver dollars. And I did not look it up this week because I wonder, you know, as many preaching illustrations go, somebody probably said it in the 40s. It could have been a Billy Graham, I don't know. So that, this week, if you find it, bring it back to me and look it up. But this favorite uncle comes to the house, the country house, and um, tells the little uh, boy, as he's flipping a silver dollar, I'd like to give you one of these. And the little boy says, I'd take care of it. And actually, I asked my wife too late. I had two silver dollars. We have some silver dollars uh, that her mother used to collect that are probably worth. What's a silver dollar worth these days? 20 bucks, maybe? I don't know. But in the day when you carried a silver dollar, a dollar was worth a lot more. And the cousin, or excuse me, the uncle was flipping the silver dollar and kept telling the little boys, I'd like to give this to you, but, you know, you really probably couldn't take care of it. And the little boys, oh, I would, I would, I would. He said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two. You keep it in each hand all day long, and if you can keep it till tomorrow morning, I'll give you both of those silver dollars. Well, the little boy said, I'll do it, I'll do it. So that day he's trying to, you know, do his chores, holding the two silver dollars. He's trying to eat later on with his two clenched fence, holding the silver dollars. And all day long, the parents and the, and the uncle, the favorite uncle, are teasing him a little bit as he's working, trying to hold these two silver dollars until a loud car goes by and his dog takes off, which my dog did this. This is why I remember it. The dog takes off, barking at the car, and somebody in the car either swerved or whatever, and the dog got hit, and the dog goes down. The little boy runs to the the dog, his dog, my dog got ran over multiple times. He was a pretty tough old collie. And he runs to the, the dog. He picks the dog up and comes running back to the house. He's not, he's not dead. The dog hasn't died, so young people, yeah, it's okay. But he comes back carrying the dog, and he looks at his uncle, and he goes, you know, whatever the dog's name was, you know, my dog's name was Sam. Sam, he's still alive. But I dropped the coins to pick up Sam. And that's what we need to do so many times in our life. We need to let go of the worldly things that keep us from taking care of those that we love and serving the one who's loved us. We must show this world the love of God more than anything else. And so often churches are not known for love. They're known for division, for the opposite of love. Satan will use possessions, passions, people, position, and that's about all the P words I could think of. He will use any tactic available to put a hold on you. Jesus says, the prince of this world has no hold on me. Sin had never entered into his life, and he knew exactly what to do and would do what the Father wanted. So today you need to let go of the world, let go of evil, and do something for the one who loves you. Let me ask you, and I know I, I want to get done early because Jim's already told me he's got 100 announcements. Um, what do you love most in your life right now? Don't raise your hand on any of these. There's just a few of them I wrote down. You love your job? Oh, I do. I just want you to know that. You love your job? 
You love the business you started. You love your house. You love your car. You love your boat. You love your spouse. You love your children. You love your grandchildren. You love your cousins, your uncles, and nie- uh, nephews, and aunts and nieces. You love your neighbor. Well, I think that says something about in here about loving our neighbor. You love the lost. You love those who have done you wrong. It's sometimes easier to love those other things. Jesus says, let go and let's get up and follow me. And that's that last little part. Come now, let us leave. I think he's trying to say, it's time to apply what I've been telling you. Come and follow me. Now, if you remember back, and I don't think I put it on this. Maybe I did. Put this next little slide up there. That is the ending that Douglas Horton, who was the dean of Harvard, a Presbyterian and Congregationalist. Actually, he was Congregationalist, and I think they became Presbyterian. That's the way he ended that, that phrase. If you love something, let it go. And if it doesn't come back, okay. But if it comes back, love it forever. Jesus came back from the dead, which would confirm what he was trying to tell these disciples of his to believe in me. And he's gone now to the Father, and someday he's coming back for you and I. Will you let go of everything else that will keep you from following him and follow the one who loves you? Stand with me, please, we pray. Lord, as we come now to a time of invitation, perhaps there's someone here who has never accepted Christ as the Lord and Savior. This is a chance to do so. Jesus came back from the grave. He would not leave his disciples as orphans. The Holy Spirit comes to all those who will ask Christ into their life. We know that your son is coming back again, and I pray that each one of us here would be prepared so that now during this time where we extend a chance, an opportunity, a time to say, I want to believe, I pray that you would touch the hearts of each one who's here. Maybe there's someone who just needs to come to these steps and pray. Our prayer warriors will join alongside them and pray through whatever issue or praise you for whatever joy they're now experiencing. Bless us, Lord, with your presence, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.